Matthew 8. Two of the most important questions you could ever ask are, who really is Jesus and what is he really like? I started wrestling with these questions as a non-Christian back in high school. I started encountering people who had a genuine, authentic relationship with Christ and started stirring in my mind, like, who, well, who really is Jesus? And what, what is he like? I'm sure I'm not the only one that has wrestled with this question. In fact, I think everybody has at some point in their life started asking who he's like, who he is, what is he like? But let me tell you that These two questions were on the forefront of the minds of every person that started hearing Jesus as he spoke 2,000 years ago. Jesus started his ministry and he began, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, with his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. No man could ever give the sermon that Jesus gave because he made it crystal clear He was the fulfillment of the law's demands. He was going to tell you God's true intent of what he wrote. He also said that you have to actually build your life on me. Like he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, if you are wise, you will come to me and you will act upon the words that I'm saying. In fact, he had just got done saying that you have to actually be in a relationship with me, else you will never make entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Heaven will never be your reality unless you are truly trusting in me. These are huge claims. And so at the forefront of people's minds are, who is this man? In fact, you can see it at the end of chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. And so what what Matthew is doing is not only he's showing the, the importance and just the sheer authority Jesus has in his words, he's now going to show us who Jesus really is and what he's like by giving a series of illustrations of events that took place after this sermon to show that Jesus is not only Lord over all, but he is also the one who is one the embodiment of love. He is love, the love of God incarnate. He is the eternal Christ, and he's also at the same time the embodiment of compassion. And that would have been crystal clear as this first scene starts to come unveiled. In chapter 8, verse 1, you find the end of this sermon. Well, it says that Jesus came down from the mountain, down from this sermon on the mount that he had just given, and large crowds followed him. Now, you need to know that in Israel, Israel is an occupied country. It has been overrun by the Roman Empire. Rome is now in charge, and they were watching their subjects closely. Anytime there would be a gathering or a following, all of a sudden, Rome's antennas would go up. And Jesus on the move with crowds listening to him and now following him would have alerted the Roman authorities because they were always very much in tune with any hint of insurrection. And and as this is taking place here, there is a particular individual that now enters the scene. This individual would come and, and he would actually be considered one of the most despised of the society. He would be absolutely marginalized. He would be one of the rejected ones. In fact, he himself would consider himself untouchable. 
As the crowds are making their way, they're following Jesus, chapter 8, verse 2, and it says, and a leper came to him. Now, if you're going to actually understand what is about to take place, you have to actually enter into what does it mean to be a leper? We actually don't even use the term leper anymore. We're probably familiar with it. Oftentimes when you think of a leper, you think of someone with Hansen's disease where their extremities have all this nerve damage and they just absolutely lose sensation. But let me help you understand what it meant to be a leper and why this scene is so staggering and so revealing. To leper, the lepros, the Greek word, actually means to have scaly skin. It's all of a sudden uh, maybe some pimples or some white uh, like snow-like substance started appearing on a rash on your arm or somewhere on your body. And the thought of leprosy at the time was that, that God was actually exercising a divine punishment upon the person that had leprosy. The idea is that they had committed some sort of heinous sin and now God was bringing judgment. And they would use like the case of like Miriam, Moses' sister. Remember when Miriam and her brother were are arguing and complaining and grumbling against Moses. Remember, God actually had Miriam and he struck her with leprosy as a judgment, lasted a week. And then they remember also one of their kings, a great king of theirs, King Uzziah. And he actually, because of his pride, disregarded what God had to say about worship. And God actually struck him with leprosy. And even though it was very rare, they took those two examples. And in the Jewish mind, if you had leprosy, you were the picture of sin and its devastating consequences. And the law made it very clear what was to take place. And so if suddenly you had developed some sort of rash and these scaly-like substance started developing on your skin, you had these pimples and this white snow-like substance, you would eventually be taken to one of the priests. And the priest would look at you and evaluate you. If he was unsure what it was, he would have you quarantined for one week. You'd for one week then be removed from all Jewish society. You couldn't go to your home. You would actually be on the outskirts of the town that you lived in. And then you'd be brought back one week later and that same priest would come and he would look and he'd evaluate you. And to see if perhaps that, no, this is just some sort of skin rash and stuff and it's going away. Things are getting better. And at which time then you'd be allowed to come back into Jewish society. If, however, it seems like, no, it's about the same or it's getting worse, then he would for an additional week have you quarantined. And you'd be outside of the community of faith. And then you would be brought back one week later and you would be examined. You look closely, and if things were progressing or getting worse, all of a sudden, if you were the leper, you would start seeing the sorrow on the man's face. And he would take one hand, and he'd put it over his mouth, and he would take his other hand, and he'd extend it forward to you, and with these words, he'd say, unclean, unclean. And with those two words, your life would be devastated. You would be completely removed from society. If your leprosy was obvious, there was like white hair growing out of this, immediately he would just come before you, hand over mouth, his palm extended toward you and just yell out, unclean, unclean. And with that then, the expectation of a leper is that he would then tear his clothes. His head, which would normally have been covered, was now going to be uncovered. He would have to now cover his mouth because the thought was that you could actually spread this 
disease of leprosy. And so anytime you ever spoke, you always had to put your mouth, hand over your mouth. And really the only words that you would ever utter, ever utter if you ever came in contact with anybody else are these two words that started to define you. Unclean. Unclean. And the disease would continue to progress. You'd develop these spongy-like tumors. They'd start going in your body. The bacilli would start spreading into your body. It would weaken you. It would attack organs, even your bones. You would likely develop tuberculosis. You would, you would experience pain. You'd watch your body deteriorate before your very eyes. Now, it's not often thought that Hansen's disease, where you actually lose sensation of your limbs and your ears and your nose and your eyes, was the biblical form of leprosy. However, from the Qumran school, uh, digs and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've actually found that there are indeed these people that actually had what we would now call Hansen's disease. That's, and, these, and there are people like this in third world countries where they, they simply lose sensation of their, of their extremities. So, for instance, they might grab a potato that fell into a fire and they wouldn't feel it. And they pick it up and they just totally just burn their hand. Or you might wash your face with scalding water. Or you'd, you'd lay hold of your tool and you'd squeeze so tight that it would start contorting your body. Some of these people actually have like rodents that will actually chew off parts of their fingers and they actually don't know that that was happening while they're sleeping. And so the life of a leper was a life of death by inches. And the social and religious implications of being a leper were huge. I mean, you were absolutely banned from society. They had, the Jewish people had 61 defilements. Number one, if you touched a dead body. Number two, if you made physical contact with a leper. And the leper was so hated by other people that he came to a point where he just started hating himself. One rabbi said this, quote, when I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near me. And another wrote this, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. And the Josephus, the Jewish historian at the time of Jesus, he wrote this, quote, as if he's talking about lepers, lepers, as if they were, in effect, dead men, dead men walking. And indeed, the rabbis considered to be cured or from leprosy would be about as significant as raising someone from the dead. And so in this man's life, this leper that comes to Jesus, there were a series of laughs in his life. There was the, the last time he ever touched his wife. There was the last time where he actually had embraced his children. There was the last time that he had actually worshipped in the synagogue. There was the last time that he had a conversation with his friends. There was the last time that he had picked up his tools. And all of a sudden, with the appearance of leprosy and the priest calling out, unclean, unclean, all of those things were removed. There was no incidental touch, no involvement in society. He could never go back to his home again. And then, of course, there would be the first. Can you imagine what this would have been like? You now are required to start yelling out, unclean, unclean, anytime anyone would come to you. Whether they be familiar, whether they be someone you love dearly, or perhaps someone you didn't even know. You needed to call out, unclean, unclean, and make your way away 
from ever coming in contact with people. And so this leper, he lived a horrific life. You and I can hardly identify with what this would be like. You had to yell out unclean. You would see the look of terror in people's eyes. Praise God, you didn't have a mirror that you couldn't see your face and just how wretched you were. You, but you could read it in the eyes and the lives of people. There would be like mothers, they'd see you coming, and they'd grab their children and pull them away. There'd be people that'd be running and fleeing from you. Maybe someone would pick up rocks, and because they had such a disdain for lepers, they'd throw them at you. It was such a man that came to Jesus as he was making his way off his plane. Verse 2. And a leper came to him, an outcast, one who is dying inside and out. And he came to him and bowed before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's something extremely profound by the first word this leper utters to Jesus. I mean, you need to understand the scene. What is taking place here should have never happened. Lepers never entered into society. If there was a crowd following Jesus and a leper comes, you all these people just be, they'd be running left and right. They'd be pulling their kids away. Everybody would be trying to get away from this leper. This leper comes and he just falls down before Jesus. You would never go to a rabbi because if he even touched you or even came near you, he would be defiled. He would be unclean. Yet this leper, he is called by some the greatest theologian of his time. Really? Why is that? Because of the very first word that comes out of his mouth. Lord, Master, the God of the universe, Lord over all. You see, this man had some very strong idea of who Jesus is. By the way. This is the first time that anyone in the Gospel of Matthew calls Jesus Lord. It's this leper. And so he falls down before him and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You see, he didn't say, Lord, I demand you to do this for me. He lays his entire situation before him. Lord, Master, God, if you are willing You can make me clean. You could restore me. But I lay it before you. He doesn't just he doesn't just say, Lord, you must do this. He says, if you are willing, he came expectantly, but not demandingly. You can make me clean. You could make me physically well and restored. You could make me ceremonially well. And I accepted you could make me spiritually well and whole. But Lord, if you are willing. And before Jesus spoke, this leper, this man could see that Jesus hated his disease more than he did. Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. These are so profound, This what, what is taking place here. I, I'd suggest that you either underline it or put a mark by it. You see, not only is Jesus willing, but 
Matthew goes to rather great lengths to point out that Jesus actually reaches out and touches this leper. This leper likely had not been touched, even incidentally, for years. It could be 20, maybe even 30 years. Complete isolation. The man had high hopes and knew that Jesus was able to heal him. He never in his wildest imaginations believed that Jesus would touch him because you simply didn't touch a leper. To do so would make yourself defiled. And a highly esteemed rabbi like Jesus would have never done that except Jesus is not a mere rabbi. He's the Lord of life. He is the one who can give purity, hope, healing, health, and he himself will never be contaminated because he himself is God. And so he reaches out and touches him. I don't know about you, but um, have there been times in your life where you felt completely alone, isolated, lonely, rejected? You just felt like, man, I am such a hopeless case. There's nothing worth, there's nothing in me of any worth. If you have been there, then you know how powerful it is just to have someone shake your hand or put their hand on their shoulder or perhaps just actually give you a hug. Just to touch you, the power of the touch. And so Jesus, he understood this man's needs, not just his physical needs, even his heart emotional, spiritual needs. And he touched him. And immediately, immediately when he did so, this man was healed. Can you imagine what that must have been like? All these crowds, they were now all standing back at least six feet. Many would be a lot further away. All of a sudden, with the touch of Jesus, this man is healed. Perhaps these extremities, fingers that perhaps had been gnawed off, all of a sudden just like, grew in front of their very eyes, skin that was scaly and just wretched, that pungent smell that was around him. All of a sudden, his skin was supple. His complexion was cleared. Whatever gashes that he had, whatever splotches all over his face, all of a sudden, this man was healed in his, their very midst. His, his feet, which had been all probably contorted in these like sandal-like things that he's wearing, all of a sudden, now these sandal things were like too small because his feet were once again healthy. And this man was healed and restored because Jesus met his need, not only physically, but he, with his touch, said, I am with you, I understand you, and I love you. And this miracle, this miracle really pictures his mission. Jesus is going to enter into the wretched of society. To the people that were watching, they were like, this man is a great sinner. To have to be cleansed from leprosy, to be healed, well, that'd have to be an act of God. Only God could do that because they attributed it to the man's sin that he had leprosy. You'd have to be God who had the power to conquer sin to be able to bring this kind of healing in this man's life. And so we see this man completely restored. But then Jesus says something in verse 4 that we would not expect. He says, verse 4, and Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, that's kind of puzzling. Why would he tell him, don't say anything? You see that? Verse 4. See that you tell no one, 
But I want you to go and show yourself to the priests. Okay? I want you to go and you do that. You show yourself to the priests and present an offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, they're up in Capernaum. 68 miles south is Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is sending him. He says, I don't want you to tell anybody. I want you to go down to those priests down in Jerusalem and I want you to give the offering. That offering would be two birds. One of those birds would be killed by the priest. The other would be set free, picturing a man who'd been released from this huge burden. Now, these priests had never seen anyone healed of leprosy. There's only one case of a Jewish person ever healed from leprosy, and that was Miriam. And so this man, who is now completely well, he is to go and he is to make an appearance at the temple to the priests, bringing that sacrifice of those two birds and say, Jesus has made me well. Now, the reason that he is supposed to do this is that Jesus is fulfilling everything that the law required. But by sending this man who's now healed to Jerusalem, to the temple, what in effect he's doing is he's putting the Jewish establishment, all the chief priests and the scribes on notice. Messiah is here. They are. This has never happened. They are going to be. What? Who did this? Jesus? This Jesus, perhaps for some of them, this will be the first time they've heard of him. Others probably have already started to hear of the power of this man. And they would attribute specifically this miracle as a miracle that only the Messiah could do. This would be, have to be some significant prophet. And so now all of a sudden he tells him, I want you to go because I want you to look at verse 4. You see that at the end there? I want you to be a testimony to them. And that is really what God intends. You and I, if our lives have truly been transformed and changed by Jesus Christ, He intends for us to be a testimony of the power of Christ. That is what he designs us to be. In fact, that is one of the reasons why you and I are on this earth. He has left us here to bear testimony to a lost world that the power of Jesus is alive and well. And he can take people that are wretched. And is that not our situation in our sin? Sick, deaf, pungent, rude, self-centered. And he has made us whole and he has healed us. It is the power of Christ. And we're to bear testimony of that. And so what Jesus is doing is he is authenticating that he indeed is Lord over all by making well the untouchable with a touch. Who is this Jesus? What is he like? He's God over all. He can actually heal a leper. And what is he like? He is loving and compassionate. And he reaches out to the people that are the most miserable, most marginalized in society. But let me show you another instance that takes place here where Jesus demonstrates who he is and what he's like. Verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, which is, by the way, now Jesus' hometown, base of operation. It's on the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Peter and some of the other disciples live there. He approaches Capernaum. He enters into now his hometown, base of operations, and a centurion came to him. Now, a centurion is a Roman official uh, soldier. He actually oversees a hundred. So like a century is what? A hundred years. A centurion oversaw 100 soldiers. Now, these guys really were the backbone of the Roman Empire and especially the army. These professional soldiers rose up from the ranks. They were very often common people. And because of their valor in battle, 
The fact that they were just men's men. They were tough. They were non-compromising. They were strong. They could command the leadership among men. They, what Rome would do is they would bring them to a point where they would call them a centurion, put them in that position, and give them a 100 men. And they, of course, had people they reported to. But the backbone of the Roman Empire, especially their army, were these centurions. They were actually much better paid than the common soldier. They could get up to, up to like 15 times more than just the soldiers that served them. And they commanded respect. They were the ones that enforced discipline. If a centurion said something, his, his subordinates immediately did what he said. Now, Roman soldiers, Romans in general, were not known for humility. They were oftentimes arrogant. They took great disadvantage over the people that they had conquered. And so this scene is very staggering in verse 5 when Jesus enters Capernaum. A centurion came to him, imploring him. Now, Luke actually says that he sends the centurion sends emissaries, representatives for him. But here Matthew records that the centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, what is this is uncommon. We wouldn't expect this from some sort of Roman soldier, a centurion, especially. He's got apparently a great compassion and a heart. For his servant. Now, these servants, uh, Roman soldiers like centurions and those of even greater advancement, they would sometimes have their servants actually fight with them. They were kind of fought in tandem. And they oftentimes these servants were so close. They were like considered like family members. They trained together. They fought together. They lived together. They were always around each other. And so what's taking place here is this centurion has a servant that obviously he deeply loves. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. Some scholars think that perhaps he was suffering from polio, which was the scourge of ancient societies. He's paralyzed at home and he's fearfully tormented. And he actually approaches Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. You see this? This is great humility. Romans didn't ask or implore Jewish people or a Jewish rabbi or Jewish teacher to come and do something for him. If they wanted something, you just told them, do it. But no, this man obviously understands who Jesus is because notice what he says, just like the leper, verse 6. What does he call, who does he call Jesus? You see that? Lord, let me tell you something. If you and I are going to have relationship with God, We are going to enter into a relationship with Christ. It always starts with and is based on humility apart on our part. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you are, I don't really care about God. You are self-centered. You still walk in your sin. You're arrogant. You cannot come to God on those terms God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You come with humility. It doesn't matter your degrees, your advancement, how much money you've got. This Roman centurion was probably well off. He was certainly important in the Roman Empire. He understands, I come just like the leper with humility. And so he makes his appeal. And Jesus, this is shocking. He says, I will come and I will actually Heal him. 
Now, you need to know something here. Jesus shouldn't have said that. Jewish people never went into the home of a Gentile because they would consider themselves to become unclean by their mere contact or going to the home of a Gentile. You see, it actually drives home kind of a larger point. You see, the Jewish nation was meant to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. They had not only received God's law, but God's law was to be ministered through them. People were to know what God was like through the Jewish people. But the Jewish people realized that we can actually be influenced by the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so what they did is they actually kind of flipped it and said, we're going to just try to ostracize any Gentile. And they had an attitude of arrogance. Instead of, so instead of reaching out to the very people that they were supposed to be showing the love of God to, they actually hated them and they did it in God's name. Sound familiar? Sounds like actually a lot of Christianity today. Despising the very people we're to be reaching. Well, Jesus shocks them by saying, I will go, I will go with you and I will heal him. See, Jesus is living out the true intent of what God always intended that you and I are to be ministers of grace. And he has the power. He has the authority to heal him. He says, I will come and heal him. Well, the centurion is very well aware of Jewish etiquette. And look at verse 8. The centurion said, no, 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 no. no. Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For he says, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes and to this another, come. And he comes and to my slave, do this. And he does it. The centurion is saying, listen, you don't need to come. All you need to do is say the word. I know how this works. See, I'm a man under authority, but I also have people under authority with me. And all I have to do is say something and it happens. I say, go, come, do this. And they do it. I know who you are. You are God and you merely need to speak. All you have to do is say the word and you can bring about whatever you desire. See, that's actually one of the fascinating attributes about God. He speaks and it happens. Remember how the Bible begins? God spoke creation, the world, the universe into existence. God said, let there be light. And light appears. This centurion knew that God, that Jesus could speak and he could heal his servant from a distance. He has a great degree of humility. He says, I am not even worthy of you to come that. You see that in verse eight? I'm not worthy of you coming into my home. You could heal from a distance. Just say it and it will happen. Your word can create, your word can heal, and your word can change lives. Well, Jesus, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, look at this, he marveled and said to those who were following, I mean, all the crowd, you know, they just saw the leper situation here, and now they're following him into Capernaum. This Roman centurion coming and bowing down before him and imploring him to come, they're all like, what in the world is going on? And they're, I mean, they're really interested. What is Jesus going to say now? Look what he says, verse 10. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following. He doesn't say it to the centurion. He says to all the crowd that's gathered around him. Truly, I say to you, 
I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And the idea here is that they pictured the kingdom of heaven like a wedding feast where there would be this great banquet and the patriarchs and those who truly believed God. They took God by faith. They would be gathered for this great feast. He says there are going to be many from the east and the west, Gentiles, people from around the world. People like you and me who will gather in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, but the sons of the kingdom, this was an idiom for the Jewish people. They considered themselves sons of the kingdom because they were related to Abraham. For them, it's all about genetics. It's in our DNA. It's our blood. We're God's people because we're Israelites. And John tried to make this clear. He said, listen, let me help you make, make this crystal clear. God can make children out of rocks. It has nothing to do with your bloodline. It has everything to do with whether you truly believe and have faith. And that's what Jesus is driving at. And he says, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom and most of the people gathered around Jesus would have thought like, oh, yeah, that's me. He says they will be cast out into outer darkness in the place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you and I must have faith, trust, belief in Jesus. We must come like the centurion. I'm not worthy all you have to do is say the word and I'll be healed. Because when we come to God and approach him in humility, then we come in a position of faith. And humility has a way of really opening our eyes and our ears and our minds to understanding. And so Jesus says, listen, verse 13 to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you've believed. And this, he, the servant was healed that very moment. You know what Jesus is doing here? He is making well those who are distant from God from a distance. The Roman centurion, his servant, they would have appeared about as far away from God as you could get. And yet Jesus from a distance can make well that person. You know why this is so important? Because Jesus has now ascended to the Father. He is not walking this earth like he did 2,000 years ago. He gave the promise, I am coming back. But he is still in the, has the power and the ability to make well people from a distance. In fact, he is in the process of doing that even today. There are on occasions where God actually does exercise a physical miracle. But let me also tell you that God is in the process of exercising spiritual miracles on an hourly basis. When people come and say, I'm not even worthy, but Lord, only say the word and I shall be healed. And they believe in Christ and they are made well. well. Let me just point out one other thing. Who is this Jesus? What is he like? Well, he's the one who can make well the maladies of people to fulfill his word Jesus is on script. Verse 14, Jesus came into Peter's home. Some believe this is actually where Jesus actually stayed. This is where he's living. And he saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick in bed with a fever. So if you've heard that, well, Peter never married. In fact, he was kind of the first pope and he didn't have any children and things like that. Uh, that is actually not true because Peter's mother-in-law is right there. Whoa. Okay, she's lying sick in bed with a fever. First Corinthians chapter nine actually talks about Peter 
and his having a wife and they were on preaching tours. So here is the mother-in-law and she is sick with fever. Perhaps she has malaria. And so Jesus, once again, to authenticate to the world who he is and what he's like, he touched her hand. Whoa. If you're a rabbi, you would never touch a woman that was not your wife. And if she was sick, you would especially not touch her. But not Jesus. He is showing who he is. And immediately she was made well and she got up and waited on them. The fever left her. And furthermore, in verse 16, when evening came, they brought to him as many who were demon possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. Whoa, healing sick people, lepers, a centurion slave. Demon-possessed people, and he casts out spirits, and he, he does it with a word. He just says it, and it's done. And it says, and he healed all who were ill. Why is, why is Jesus doing these miracles and these healings? What, what is taking place? What is taking place is Jesus is fulfilling all the words written about who he is as Messiah. Look at verse 17, another verse worth highlighting. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. 700 years prior to the coming of Christ, these words were written. He himself took our infirmities and he carried away our diseases. You see, what's taking place here is Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of what Messiah will be like. And one of those is that he will actually do miracles to substantiate his claims that he is God. And furthermore, he does these miracles to show his heart. He is loving and he is compassionate. He cares and he's a God of kindness and of love. And everyone reading this would be familiar with verse 4. They'd even be more familiar with verse 5. Because in verse 5 it says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. You see, the reason Christ did these miracles is to show that he would be the one who would truly be pierced through for our transgressions and he'd be crushed for our iniquities. He would bear our sins in his body on the cross. And so Jesus didn't heal everybody. There were lots of still people that were paralyzed and sick. He didn't heal whole villages. What he did is he did what was necessary to validate who he is, to make it Crystal clear, I am the one. Like he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those are some pretty strong words, Jesus. Are you really God? To substantiate to the world and to have recorded for us, he did these miracles for these effects. You and I, We get so caught up in the miracles. That was actually one of the reasons why he told the leper, I don't want you to go and advertise this until you go down to the priest. Because we could get so fixed and caught up in miracles that we miss Messiah. We miss who he is. And Jesus wants people to know who he is and to trust him for who he is. And so perhaps you've come here today and you got some issues in your life. Relationship breakdown. Maybe you've got a health issue. Maybe you've had a severe financial crisis. Maybe you're facing very difficult uh, circumstances in your life. God wants to meet you where you're at. 
But he brings pain and problems to our life to draw us to the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, and has a heart of complete love. And so how do we respond to him? Let me just tell you real simply. First of all, you and I, we have to recognize who he is and see our need for him. Until we recognize Christ as the Son of God, God in the flesh, and see our need because of our sin, we'll never come to him. Second thing is we need to repent. We need to repent of our sin and our self-centeredness. The word repent means to turn 180 degrees. It's to realize, I am unworthy. And you turn from your sin and you trust Christ as your Savior. And third, you respond with faith. Like the leper, like the centurion, respond with faith in Christ. That he indeed is the living Lord. Now, he may or may not heal you or rescue you out of your financial problem or your health issue. But possibly he may. But one thing is certain. He promises that if we trust him, he will indeed rescue us from our sin. And we will always be with him in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I challenge you to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to see the entire journey to take the first step. All you need to do is see Jesus for who he is. And what he's like. He is God and Lord over all. And he is the embodiment of love and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. You have made it crystal clear who Jesus Christ is. Fully God. There is nothing that he cannot do. And just like the word around Jerusalem and Capernaum was, God is walking among us and his power is in our midst. So it is our testimony today, Lord, where we see you for who you are and believe fully that you are able. And so we just lay our lives and our situations before you. We ask for your divine help. We ask, Lord, that we would trust you and that you would increase our faith. And Father, for the person who has come here today who's never trusted you, but perhaps this morning now sees you for who you are, Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my sin and my arrogance, my self-centeredness. And I finally see, I see Jesus for who he is, compassionate and loving, caring, and yet the one who truly is able to do something about my sin. In fact, has because he went to the cross. So, Lord, we trust you. And I pray, Father, that you would work out your perfect will in our lives. You would increase our faith. You'd help us to grow strong in your life. And we might spread your joy, your love, and your testimony throughout this world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grant.